Welcome to Students Incorporated, a podcast exploring the topics of business, education, technology, and design. I'm your host, Mr. Jason. Join me weekly as my team and I produce content that's informative, positive, fun, and uplifting. Episodes include student conversations, interviews with thought leaders, and inspirational stories with an international flavor. This podcast is created and produced with the help of students from the International Community School of Bangkok. Hi, I'm Patience and I'll be hosting today's episode and I'm joined by co-host Premi. In this episode, we'll attempt to unravel the mysteries of the mind and explore the most effective and not so effective study methods with a group of non-experts, the podcast team. Have you ever wondered why some study techniques help you ace an exam while other techniques don't? From the well-trodden paths of space repetition and active recall to the pitfalls of cramming and passive reading, we'll guide you through the strategies that truly work and those that can lead you astray. Whether you're a student aiming for academic excellence, a lifelong learner, or just someone curious about the art of learning, this episode is for you. But before we get started, let's hear the quote of the day and get some headline news. Her quote of the day comes from Peter Rogers. He said, You have to make your own condensed notes. You learn from making them. A lot of thinking goes into deciding what to include and exclude. You develop your own system of abbreviations and memory methods for that information. This quote highlights the importance of developing a personalized system of abbreviations and memory methods, indicating a customized approach to retaining and recalling the information. Overall, it emphasizes the active engagement and cognitive effort involved in the process of making condensed notes, ultimately resulting in effective learning. And that's our quote of the day. Because today's episode is on the topic of studying, our new segment will focus on the opposite of studying. So here are some rather disturbing news bits about cheating. In 2015, a school district in Atlanta, Georgia, was investigated because that district's test scores had increased substantially, more so than normal. The investigation revealed that teachers and administrators had been altering students' test scores and encouraging a culture of cheating in an attempt to make the school district look better. When interviewed, the superintendent of the school district believed that she had done nothing wrong. As a result of the investigation, 11 teachers were convicted of racketeering and faced up to 20 years in prison for their actions. For those of you that don't know, racketeering is defined as a set of illegal activities aimed at commercial profit or a coordinated effort by multiple people to repeatedly earn a profit by fraud, extortion, bribery, threats, violence, or through other illegal means. It's basically a type of organized crime similar to what the Mafia engages in. Moving on to our next news story. Earlier this year in February, a teacher at Cape Corral High School in Florida discovered that many of his students had been using ChatGPT in order to write their IB papers. The students were part of the school's elite IB program and were all smart and hardworking teens, the school thought. However, with AI tools becoming more advanced and accessible to the public, the temptation to abuse it also develops. More and more students are using such programs to complete menial schoolwork and write their essays, which is causing alarm for many schools globally. Some schools have taken action by banning AI tools from their school network or relying on AI checking tools, which is still not a reliable method for checking originality. And finally, this news piece comes out of Southeast Asia. A Filipino professor from the Bicol University of College of Engineering advised her students to bring headwear to their midterm exams in an attempt to curb cheating and encouraged them to go wild, which the class did. Some copied the infamous Thai 
Kassistart University's anti-cheating method of attaching two A4 papers to a headband worn by the students to block them from looking at their classmates' papers. Some, however, went even further and brought in headwear that they crafted themselves and funny props that they wore to the exam. The professor and students were both amused and proud of themselves for causing a humor stir in the midst of the pressure exerted upon them by the midterm exams. Speaking of midterms, ICS's midterms are also starting today. And that ends our headline cheating news for this episode. Hey everybody, this first segment will be discussing some study methods that work and some that don't. I'm joined by our student podcast team and Mr. Jason today, and we'll have another special guest toward the end of the episode share a funny or not so funny top 10 list. To get started in this segment in keeping with the topic of study methods, I can share a study method that works for me. During my junior year, I I found it really helpful to study at a cafe. It helps me study better because I'm not in my bedroom, tempting me to lay on my bed. Cafes have a very peaceful atmosphere and soothing vibes. I go to places like Starbucks or maybe like a small restaurant cafe. Premi, maybe you can share one of your methods that work, and then we can jump into our first discussion question for the team. Yeah, of course. Okay, so study methods. I think the one that helps me the most would be active recall. So when I like go through the material, I'll close the textbook and then I'll have a piece of paper and then I'll just write everything I can remember. I think this works a lot better than passive reading because I think for me, passive reading isn't as effective because it's just you reading information over and over again. But like that information is always in front of you and that information isn't going to be in front of you in the test. So I think that really helps. And then another thing that I also do would be just giving myself incentives to study. So like if I finish this chapter in half an hour, I'm going to get myself a chocolate, something like that. Okay, now let's move on to our first study question. It is, what study method have you found to be the most effective in retaining information long term? And why do you think that works so well? China's taking our first question. That's crazy, Premi. I use the same technique as you. The study method that I found the most effective is the Feynman technique. For this technique, you basically try to explain the subject in your own words as you were teaching someone. I think this technique works well because it forces you to think deeper into the subject you're studying. It forces you to simplify things but also get to the main point and idea of the subject. Mm, That's a good technique. Maybe I should try it too. Moving on to our next question about studying. Rebecca, this one's for you. It is, can you share a popular study method that you tried and found to be ineffective? And why do you think that it was ineffective? I learned from a Harvard student on Instagram that if we draw circles with our dominant hand while memorizing schoolworks, that can help us remember the information better and faster. However, from what I've tried, it doesn't do much and can be distracting. Oh, that's interesting. Drawing circles? Well, okay. I'll, I'll see if I should try that one. But yeah, those sound distracting. Okay, and how you've got this next question. It is... How do you adapt your study methods to different types of content, such as theoretical subjects versus practical skills? I'd say when you study theory, it's kind of like more memorization. So I just need to keep on studying over and over again until I like fully remember all the content. Maybe ask a friend to help with each other or teach each other, which is like, I guess, Chanya's method. But with like practical skills, like they're kind of hard to study. There's a bunch of other ways you can do those too. Like I think for physics, it's like a more practical based class because you have a lot of labs and real-world relevance that's emphasized. So I guess how I would study, I guess I just learned all the theory first and then tried to learn how to apply it. But like the problem with that is it takes a longer time to do. 
because it's like a two-step process and it's also harder to study with friends. Ah, I see. Our next question brings in technology. In your opinion, how important is the role of technology in modern learning methods? And do you have any specific tech tools or apps that you recommend? For me, I like Canva. Back to you, Chanya. I think technology is pretty important in modern learning methods. It definitely provides a lot of benefits and convenience in finding information. Personally, I like to use Google Tasks, which you can actually add to the side of your Gmail. I use Google Tasks to organize my assignments and work for the week. Yeah, I think technology definitely plays a role now, like especially more now in like learning methods and not just learning methods to like organization system. Okay, here's another intriguing thought. We've been learning about like studying and memorization methods in psychology, whether that's chunking, spacing, or like methods of loci, and sleep. I don't think we stress the importance of sleep enough. Back in our unit about sleeping, I felt like really a lot worse just staying up late just to study. Did you know that like not getting enough sleep actually makes you lose actual brain cells? I'm not kidding. And I think like studying wise, study before an hour before sleep. Proves to be helpful, better better for retaining the information, since you'll receive less distractions from that information or stimuli before going to sleep. But if you study a few minutes before drifting to sleep, though, it's proven that you will definitely not recall anything in those few minutes. So yeah, it's been interesting to see how that how we've been learning that in psych and how it plays out in real life and also here. So I think the underlying principle though with like studying and memorization tools would be just like the purpose of long term potentiation, right? And then, so like, so studying and the retention of information won't be as effective or meaningful if you're only looking to remember the material for a day just to pass this quiz or this test. And that I think that defeats the purpose of learning a little bit. What do you think, Rebecca? Personally, I find that chunking works best for me as a high school student, especially this year. I took a lot of difficult classes, and I was overwhelmed by the amount of information I had to learn every day. However, I later realized that the chunking method is really helpful for my study. It helps me to memorize the knowledge better and understand each point better by categorizing them into different sections. That's a good tactic. Moving on to our next studying question, and it's about groups. How do you find learning in a group setting versus an individual setting? For instance, in projects, do you find one more beneficial than the other, and in what context? Yanhao, what do you think? I think they're both pretty important. Like, group projects have potential depending on if the project works better as a group. Like, for example, using psychology as an example, if you like go break social norms at the mall, it's easier to do it with a group because it's not as embarrassing in there, and you can actually like、uh, have include more variables in your experiment. But then there's always like a risk of somebody that doesn't do much around like in in that group. But like in like a study, like actual study group, not like a group project. It's harder to do that because everyone's expecting you to know some of that information and actively participate so that you can actually、um, gain that knowledge from the session. But like, I guess study groups can help more with, I guess, reviewing and clarifying specific niches that you don't really understand if you already know most of the general content and studied up before the session. So studying on your own is still important since you have to understand the content yourself in order to like start learning and building healthy habits. Rather than depending on your friends to help you carry you in a study session, teach you everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another aspect that goes into this is just comes down to like personal preference. Like some people just tend to do better studying alone versus studying in groups. Okay, now moving on to our last discussion question for this segment, which will be for Tanya and Rebecca. 
What advice would you give to someone struggling to find a study method that works for them? And how would you suggest that they go about experimenting with different techniques? I think the best advice I could give is to start by knowing what you find the most interesting. For me, I find interest in drawing and visualizing concepts. I would start off with finding study methods that center around visualizing subjects and explore from there. I think starting off with something that you connect with and find interest in would help you retain the information you learn better. So in short, start off with what's familiar and comfortable to you and then explore from them. The advice I would give is to try different study methods when you are studying and try it for a week and see if it works for you. If not, you can always develop your own method of studying and share it with others. Making your own method is a great way to know yourself and give more options for other students to try in their study life. And with those final thoughts and advice about studying, we hope this discussion was thought-provoking and helpful, especially to all the students out there who are entering final exams. Stay tuned for part two as we'll be right back after this short PSA announcement about how you can get involved with Students Incorporated. Hey, Mr. Jason here. We've got a great way for you to elevate your brand, club, or message with our podcast episode sponsorship program. Are you looking to amplify your message and reach a dedicated and engaged audience? As our podcast continues to grow, we are now offering an exciting opportunity to become an episode sponsor with three distinct sponsorship levels tailored to meet your needs and your budget, silver, gold, and platinum. Our silver level sponsorship is the perfect starting point if you are looking to dip your toes into the world of advertising. With our silver level, you'll be introduced to our audience in a meaningful and impactful way at the beginning of an episode, or step up to our gold level sponsorship. This level offers not one, but two call-outs during the episode. Tailor your shout-outs for the beginning and end of the episode, as your message will be one of the first and last things our listeners hear. And finally, our platinum level sponsorship includes all of the gold level, plus you get the entire PSA segment dedicated to your brand or message. Enjoy top-tier placement at the beginning, middle, and end of the episode, ensuring our listeners get your message. So if you're interested in becoming a sponsor and connecting to our growing audience base with your message, contact our team today through email at studentsincpodcast at gmail.com or through our Instagram account at Students Incorporated. Join us in this exciting journey and become a part of our podcast family. And we are back with a part two. In this segment, we'll be discussing the topic of academic cheating, an ongoing issue worldwide. We'll explore the effects and consequences of this unethical practice, from how it undermines the integrity of education to its impact on future careers and personal development. We'll try to understand the ripple effects that academic dishonesty can have. But before we get into this topic more, we have collected a few teacher stories about cheating. Mr. Jason, can you share what several teachers wrote to us about this topic? Sure. Our first story is about getting caught red-handed. The teacher writes, I used to like to watch my science classes from the back of the room during test. As I was looking around, I noticed a student very interested in his hand. I looked a little closer and noticed he had something written on his hand, and it was written in red ink. I caught him literally red-handed cheating on the test. Our next cheating story is about the excuse of oversleeping. 
The teacher writes, I had a student who didn't come to the final because the student overslept and had to take it on the makeup day. Talking to other teachers, it was discovered that this student made the same claim for other finals to other teachers. Apparently, she wanted to find out what was on the exam before taking it. The makeup exams were definitely harder and this student did not benefit from the curve because it was a different exam. The worst part is that this student tried to do this again the next year but was caught immediately because the student was already on the teacher's radar. Our third and final teacher story about cheating is about makeup quizzes. The teacher writes, I assigned a matching quiz to my students, but one student was absent that day and had to take the makeup quiz later. To create the makeup quiz, I shifted the questions around, taking the last question and placing it at the beginning. This meant that every subsequent question was moved down one number. Interestingly, the student ended up scoring a zero on the makeup quiz. However, had they taken the original, unmodified quiz, they would have scored a perfect 100. Apparently, the student didn't bother to read any of the questions to check if the answers made sense. And that ends our teacher stories about cheating. Hopefully, these stories can serve as a caution to all potential cheaters out there. The simple message we can take away from this story is to just don't do it. It's just not worth it. Moving on, maybe some of us have different understandings about what constitutes cheating. Primmy's here to set the record straight. Can you give us the definition of what academic cheating is? According to the dictionary, cheating is to act dishonestly or unfairly in order to gain an advantage, especially in a game or examination. Cheating violates the principles of academic integrity, which includes honesty, trust, fairness, respect, and responsibility. It undermines the educational purpose, but also hampers the teacher's own learning and ethical development. Basically, it's ethically wrong. And in some cases, as we heard in the news, cheating is breaking the law, and you could be prosecuted if caught. Mr. Jason has a list of some common cheating behaviors that we will be discussing in this segment, and then we'll end up with a top 10 list presented to you by a special guest. Mr. Jason, can you start us off with your list of common cheating behaviors? That's right. I have a list of seven common behaviors that can constitute academic cheating. The first item is plagiarism. Plagiarism is copying someone else's work, ideas, or expressions without proper acknowledgement or citation and presenting them as your own. Our discussion question is, how does plagiarism impact the value of academic achievements? And what steps can be taken to better educate students about the importance of originality and proper citation? Yanhao, this question's for you. Plagiarism occurs in a large variety of academic work, but it arguably occurs the most prominently in essays. So writing a whole essay by researching everything you know and revising it in order to make it look better and sharing your own thoughts in the essay is something that most students can be proud of doing once they finish or they can be tired. But plagiarism basically takes away a huge part of that work since you're essentially just copying and pasting something into your work that someone took the time to think and write about. It doesn't benefit the student in any way since they're unable to gain a deeper understanding of the topic. And stricter measures should be imposed in order to discourage plagiarism and students can easily be taught about citations and ways that plagiarism negatively affects them. Alright, the second item is unauthorized collaboration. Unauthorized collaboration is working with others on assignments that are meant to be completed individually. Alright, our discussion question is, in what ways does unauthorized collaboration blur the line between cooperative learning and academic dishonesty, and how should schools define and regulate it? This reminds me of the honor code. From my perspective, unauthorized collaboration should be considered as cheating. 
which should be treated seriously because it is basically eating someone else's idea in your own paper and certainly blurs the lines between cooperative learning, which should be group work where each team member equally distributes the work and contributes equally to the team. However, for unauthorized collaboration, students simply copy and paste others' work and turn it in as their own. There's no way for a teacher to make every student follow the honor code. It is entirely up to them and their conscience. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. And on that same idea of unauthorized, the next item is the use of unauthorized materials. The use of unauthorized materials is accessing notes, books, electronic devices, or any other resources during an exam or assignment when these materials are not permitted. Our next discussion question is, what are the implications of using unauthorized materials during exams? And how can educators create an environment that discourages this behavior while still encouraging to learn? Chanya, what do you think? Some implications of using unauthorized materials is probably somewhere along the lines of having your exam taken away, score canceled, or having to meet with higher authority. I think educators could try to discourage this behavior by creating a less competitive and stressful environment. I think the best way of doing this is probably through giving out more encouragement and promoting positive productivity. Okay, our fourth item is called fabrication. Fabrication is inventing or falsifying data, research, or sources. Premi, you've got the next question. What are some of the long-term consequences of fabricating data in academic work, especially in research and fact-finding? And how can it affect future scholarly pursuits? And how? what are your thoughts? So making up data or sources can definitely affect academic work since it takes away the purpose of researching accurate data and replaces it with pure finesse. point that you're trying to support with that false data is extremely weak and can be exposed almost instantly if no sources are provided, and an overwhelming amount of research that opposes that point is easily found. That's why some teachers require citations in their work in order to ensure that the students are finding reliable sources to draw information from. If you're unable to find scholarly sources that aren't fabricated and use them to your advantage while in high school, you will definitely struggle in university with all the research papers that you will have to submit and the thesis that you will have to write. All right, thank you, Yen Hao. Our next item is impersonation. Impersonation is having someone else sit for you at an exam or perform an assignment on your behalf. Patience? So our next question is, why do you think students resort to impersonation and what measures can be implemented to prevent this form of cheating? Rebecca, what are your thoughts? In my opinion, this happens a lot in our daily life because some students don't have the confidence to be able to write great college essays. Therefore, they're afraid that what they write won't be accepted by the admissions officers. Thus, they resort to impersonation because they have belief in them instead of themselves. This should be attributed to the fact that students don't put in 100% effort during their school days. Their laziness and procrastination prevent them from completing tasks on their own and therefore leave them in the hands of others. If there's a will, there's a way, because people will figure out how to get away from getting caught. So the only thing we can do is to pray for them and to bear the spiritual fruit inside them and honor God in every aspect of their life. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, for that answer. Our next item is tampering with work. Tampering with work is altering graded exams or assignments for the purpose of a regrade. Premi? Our discussion question is, 
How does tampering with graded work undermine the academic grading system, and what ethical dilemmas does it pose for both students and educators? Chanya, can you take this one? Since the grading system is meant to be a reference point and evaluation tool for equal and fair grading, tampering with the system would cause unfairness. The tampering of a grading system for students would be discouraging to them, and it is unfair because it does not reflect the actual ability and quality of the student and their work. I think for educators, it would definitely cause a loss of integrity and organization. All right, thank you, Chanya. And our last item is facilitating dishonesty. Facilitating dishonesty is helping another student cheat or providing them with unauthorized material or information. Patience. Our final discussion question is: What are the ethical implications for students who facilitate cheating among their peers, and how should institutions address this form of complicity? Yanhao, what do you think? Uh, encouraging your peers to cheat and helping them do so is not only a breach of academic conduct, but also affects the morality of the students involved in the cheating and increases the chances that they will repeat this kind of behavior in the future. It's also unfair to the students who did study or work hard for the assignment. Institutions should address this by comparing students' work to each other, or create more isolated environments for testing so that it's harder to cheat. They could also ask students to explain their work periodically, or apply the content to their own personal lives, so that students are forced to write something original. Yeah, thank you so much, Yan Hap. And now, as we close out this segment, we've been invited another guest to join us. Welcome to the podcast, Mrs. Amber. As a high school principal, we'd love for you to end the segment by reading our top ten list titled "Ten Outrageous Sheet Methods That Probably Won't Work." Some of these methods may sound familiar, or maybe you've seen it dramatized in a movie. Either way, they're quite creative. Mrs. Amber, go ahead and share our creative sheeting list. Sure, and thanks for having me. Okay, here are ten outrageous cheating methods that probably won't work. Number one, the water bottle label. Students printing answers in tiny font on the inside of water bottle labels. Number two, Morse code blinking. Communicating answers in a classroom using Morse code by blinking. Number three, the eraser code. Using different shaped erasers to represent different answers in a multiple choice test. Number four, invisible ink revelations. Writing notes with invisible ink and using UV light to reveal them during the exam. Number five, mathematical nail art. Painting formulas and tiny notes on fingernails only visible up close. Number six, the fake arm sling. Hiding notes inside of a fake arm sling. Number seven, hacking the school system. Tech-savvy students hacking into school systems to change grades. Number eight, elastic band stretch. Writing notes on an elastic band and stretching it to read during a test. Number nine, the classic tiny paper. Writing notes on extremely tiny pieces of paper and hiding them in pens, sleeves, or under watch bands. And number ten, the coughing Morse code. A group of students using a coughing system to indicate the correct answers to each other. And with that final method, coughing Morse code, <laughs> that seems like a lot of work to do. We have run out of time. Cheating may provide a short-term advantage if you don't get caught. However, the long-term effects can be pretty damaging to an individual's learning development. Not to mention the slew of other negative things we've already talked about.
As we end this episode, we'd like to encourage everyone out there to be lifelong learners. You don't have to be an official student or enrolled in the class to be a learner. Being a lifelong learner is as much about attitude and intention as it is about taking a specific class or subject. We are never too old to learn something new, right, Mr. Jason? Uh, that's right. And as always, this podcast would not be possible without the hard work and support of our international student production team. All music and sound effects are courtesy of Pixabay.com, a vibrant community of creatives sharing copyright-free images, videos, and music. And we are signing off until next time. We are Students Incorporated, because your voice matters. <laughs>